ITU comes back and says, uh, that's a bit steep. We probably don't need that much. How about one video? Quackalope responds a couple weeks later saying, well, actually, I've already filmed eight hours of content over 50 hours of work, but wow, he did not like it very much, finding it frustrating. But don't worry, because if he gets sponsored, he'll get rid of the negative footage and ITU can send someone to help them with the game and they can reshoot it for a more positive video. ITU comes back and says, mm, okay, let's maybe not do Eon Trespass. Doesn't seem like you like it. Let's try a different game. Quackalope keeps pushing sponsorship for Eon Trespass, and they end up not coming to any agreement and stop communicating until someone at ITU emails Quackalope about a first impressions video of a learn to play. And Quackalope goes, sorry, too late, to which ITU severs communication. Quackalope posts the negative video, which is titled Eon Trespass is unplayable, and another later on that says we've had enough of it. A fan sounds off about it in the Kickstarter comments, to which Marcin of ITU responds with a hypothetical of, well, if someone would want us to pay them for a positive review, we wouldn't do that, which made it very easy to connect the dots. It was like they gave you the dots and the number order to connect them with. Sure enough, this makes it around the board game circles, asking for receipts, to which Jesse responds first, trying to make it shine the Quackalope channel in the best light. But when ITU posts the emails, which basically confirmed exactly what I just told you, that Quackalope shot footage that was negative, but he'd be willing to delete it and reshoot a more positive video if they paid him and sent someone from their staff to show them the game. Was this extortion? I don't know. Was it just a YouTube channel having too much hubris, thinking they had so much sway in the industry that IT would surely pay them for a positive review because a negative review would sink the game? Could be. Could be both. Again, that's not my department. My department is the reaction and the psychology of sponsored content. Because the reaction was strong and swift. Subscribers leaving not only Quackalope's channel, but others that were associated with them. Board Game Co., for example, posted a video how he has lost over 100 subscribers in 24 hours because he had videos with Quackalope, but that's unfair because he hasn't done a video with Jesse in over a year. While yes, that is correct that you haven't, I think we can figure out in the course of this class the actual reason, because the actual reason makes a lot more sense. Other people went a little too broad with their reaction, lambasting basically all reviewers who take any kind of money from any publisher. Which again, we don't cover why that was a response. Another swore off any channel that took any money from sponsors at all. So quite the range. So that's our backdrop to today's class. That's what we are going on. And to get to where we need to go, let's start by defining some terms. The first term is an easy one. Marketing. What is marketing? Marketing is a broad concept that encompasses various activities and strategies aimed at promoting, selling, and distributing products or services to targeted consumers or customers. It involves understanding customer needs and preferences, identifying target markets, and developing effective communication and promotional strategies to reach and influence the target audience. Whew, I felt like a business professor there for a moment, like an MBA is just going to appear plastered to my wall. But marketing is something that surrounds us no matter where we go, and we even market ourselves. In interviews, dating apps, parties, we are marketing ourselves. Same with companies. But there's something that is psychologically going on that marketers hate, and that is our response to being persuaded. We have a system called many things, like the resistance system, the persuasion activation system, the persuasion resistance system, or just persuasion knowledge. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It wants to resist being persuaded. Usually, this means that when someone is trying to sell us something, our body is immediately puts up a barrier to be like, ah, no, I don't need that. I'm going to be skeptical of whatever you're saying because I know you're trying to sell me something. Like I said, this is the chief rival of marketers everywhere because in order for them to sell you something, they have to overcome this. I believe they call this overcoming objections in sales meetings. And there's a couple ways that they can do this. 
The first would be just the occurrence that people actually want something. They walk into a store and they go, yeah, I want a phone, probably the new iPhone. Well, okay, that was easy. Or maybe they just go, yeah, I want a phone. Tell me about the ones you have. These were the best customers when I worked for Best Buy because it was so easy to sell. You would ask what they would use the phone for and figure out what they needed. Maybe it was a Pixel for the camera, iPhone for the ecosystem with their Mac, or a Samsung because they hate Apple. Oh, this is a fun fact. Speaking of this, they actually did a study on Samsung and Apple users on their brainwaves and what would happen if good things were said about their phones and negative things about the other company. And they found that Samsung users' brains were so much happier at negative things about Apple, which led that particular study to posit that one of the main reasons Samsung users buy Samsung was just an utter disdain of Apple. Hilarious. Anyways, I digress. So this is one way, right? The persuasion barrier has already lowered, so you're just kind of welcomed in. But let's say that you aren't welcomed in. That barrier is up. What do you do? Well, the first idea would be fight it, to absolutely bombard it. Because what some studies have found is that this persuasion resistance system is a finite resource. You can only resist for so long before you become more susceptible to being sold things. And this rears its head in two ways. One is the marketing staple called the rule of seven. The rule of seven basically says that someone needs to see your brand seven times before they make a purchase decision. It doesn't have to be the same method all seven times, just that they need to see it or interact with it seven times. This is why you see banners on BGG or Kickstarter ads on Reddit or maybe even giveaways of games. That's another time you've seen it or interacted with it. And in the case of giveaway, you've maybe even researched it now so you can answer some trivia questions. There's so much bombardment of the product that sure, for some people, they might just be tired of it. But for others, you've gotten them to at least go and look at your page or possibly even buy it. The first time they saw it, maybe they just thought, "Mm, okay, well, that's a thing. Then they saw it again and then again until they finally went, okay, yeah, I want to try it. Or yeah, okay, maybe I'll finally scroll through the Kickstarter page. The other way bombardment works is just by overwhelming your senses and then giving you a little something to sneak past that bit of barrier that dropped. I'm talking about malls and very much supermarkets. Think about it. How much is going on at the supermarket? A lot. Your senses are completely overwhelmed, which by the way is why you need a shopping list. Your brain is overexposed a lot of the time at the supermarket. But supermarkets are constantly selling you things with all your senses. Fresh baked bread filling your nose, eye-catching displays and big sales signs advertising buy one get one, the touch of fresh produce and grabbing of packages and the pushing of the cart, free samples of things you absolutely do not need, but hey, I thanks for the free lunch. And of course, priming the idea that maybe just maybe you can subtly get people to buy a certain product by playing a certain kind of music do you know about these studies fascinating stuff i think the most famous example of one of these studies is that if the supermarket played german music people were more likely to buy german wine and they could do this for different countries cool stuff not really like super supported but interesting so you're overwhelmed and you're loading your shopping cart onto the uh, i don't know what did what um what do you call that thing like the lane thing so you can get your items scanned and you know what? I'm a bit parched. Or you know what? My brain is tired. And you know what brains like when they're tired? Sugar. So lo and behold, what do I have in front of me but a nice mini fridge filled with Coke and other beverages and candy bars and some salty snacks. This is a play on your resistance system. Your system is so worn down at this point that it might just go for that $1 candy bar or those nice cold beverages. So that's the Rocky Balboa method, little jabs staying in the fight, ready for the knockout. I only use the most popular, recently relevant examples here. But what if I told you, hey, you're trying too hard. Fight smarter, not harder. What if I told you, you don't even need to fight? Would you be interested? Probably, that sounds pretty good. 
Well, let me introduce you to a way in which people don't put up any resistance because they don't even know they're being advertised to. Let me introduce you to stealth marketing. The idea of stealth marketing is not new. You've probably seen it hundreds, if not thousands of times. Product placements in movies, people writing fake positive reviews, creating fake controversies, things like that. And stealth marketing is not only relatively cheap, but it is highly, highly effective. Like I said, people don't even have the chance to put up a resistance because they don't know that they're being advertised to. Pepsi, for example, just gave the cast of Back to the Future free soda during the shoot to be the brand for the movies. The movie producers wanted them too, but Pepsi quote-unquote bought it with free soda. That's a pretty good profit margin on product placement for that. The only downside, and it's a biggie, is that many countries have laws in place that are getting more and more strict of how you can do this, and many times in which you can't. In the EU and the US, you'll see lots of banners on YouTube saying, sponsored video. Or in the EU, on Netflix, you'll see warnings at the beginning of the film if it includes product placements. In Japan, some stealth marketing can lead you to getting charged with deception. It's a lot of risk, but ultimately there's so much gray area that many companies still go for it. But some don't and choose to go somewhere else, or really to somebody else. Because maybe the problem is that companies are inherently often seen as the bad guy. If I know Oreo is trying to sell me Oreos, well, I'm going to resist that. But if someone else were to try to tell me that the new Oreos are good, well, maybe I'd believe them. And this is where we start getting into sponsored content. What if you, as a company, could hire someone that other people already trust, someone that has already built a good reputation with an audience, to sell your product? That might just be pretty useful. So what is sponsored content? Well, sponsored content is, and let me put my fake business professor hat on, a form of advertising that involves the creation and promotion of content that is designed to resemble the non-advertising content on a platform. The purpose of sponsored content is to provide value to the target audience while subtly promoting a brand, product, or service. It is intended to blend in with the surrounding editorial or organic content, making it less intrusive or disruptive to the user experience. Okay, I am taking that hat off. Yeah, sponsored content is a company going to somewhere else and running an ad that is sometimes indistinguishable, or at least as unobtrusive as possible, to the normal everyday happenings of the channel or podcast or YouTube video. Well, hold on. If it seems like everyday happenings, that kind of makes it hard to know it's advertising, right? Doesn't that just sound like stealth marketing, which we just talked about? People can get in trouble for that, yeah? Yeah, and yeah. Here's one of the very few parts of the episode on sponsored content that I can appropriately play you from last week tonight with John Oliver. Companies have also bought their way directly into local news broadcasts. Back in 2017, Sinclair faced a $13.3 million fine from the FCC over segments promoting the Huntsman Cancer Institute, which were broadcast more than a thousand times on local Sinclair stations with no indication whatsoever that they were sponsored. Some of these segments aired during the evening news. And in hindsight, the tone of the reports were suspiciously upbeat. This complex machine is eradicating cancer without the invasive procedures. For patients like Jeff, this is welcome news. If you're going to have prostate cancer, this is the time to have it. In Salt Lake City, Utah, Mark Cabell reporting. That is a hell of a positive spin. No time like the present to have prostate cancer. What are you waiting for? And despite how he signed off there, is Mark Cabell actually reporting? Because in retrospect, it seems more like Mark Cabell is parroting the absurdly sunny cancer propaganda of his business daddy's favourite money friend. But I will say this, at least that is an instance of a broadcaster acting so egregiously the FCC was able to take action. A lot of the time, stations are doing just enough to stay the right side of the FCC. 
Yeah, exactly. Like we just talked about. There can be some oversight, but there's a lot of gray area. The rest of the segment talks about some products for things that are supposed to help with genitalia, both male and female, and it's an interesting watch, and I'll give you the link to watch it at home. Just, I can't show it to you now, both for language and also copyright. Sponsored content on TV isn't new. It plays off of the relationships you've built with the local TV crew. You count on them for the weather or interesting cooking recipes or the local events. You might have watched the local coverage during COVID to see how it was in your area and listened to the chief medical reporter to see what you could do to keep yourself safe. You trust them. You've built a relationship with them. You might have even built a parasocial relationship with them, which is a kind of one-sided relationship in which you feel like you are interacting with them. But they aren't the only ones in which people feel parasocial relationships with. They aren't the only ones being trusted by thousands or millions of viewers. Now you have influencers, YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram celebrities. These people have earned your trust, built their own brands, and that makes them oh so interesting for advertisers, especially if the influencer or brand can make it seem like it's just a part of the regular content and not an advertisement at all. In a 2015 study, 60% of people fail to identify a piece of sponsored content as marketing, so it's effective. One such example I kept running across was an article in the New York Times, and I'm just going to read a bit from this journal article by Chatterjee and Joe. Take, for example, the article, Women Inmates, Why the Male Model Doesn't Work, which was published in the New York Times. The article discussed the incarceration experience of the female inmates in U.S. prisons. The write-up offered an in-depth analysis of the challenges that the female inmates experienced and also provided some insights on how to improve the quality of life of the women convicts. At a first glance, it may seem like an example of typical first-class journalism that any reader of the New York Times would expect to see. However, upon careful examination of the article, a reader would find that the article was a paid post. The advertiser-slash-sponsor of this article was Netflix, even though in the entire article there was no reference of either the brand Netflix or any product that Netflix TV shows, for example, any reader interested in contemporary television culture would realize that the article was subtly used to raise interest and awareness of Netflix's original series, Orange is the New Black. So in this case, the New York Times used their position as a trustworthy source for many, wrote a piece about women's prisons, and it was all an ad for a TV show. Effective journalism, but with a catch. You see, what the study earlier also found was that yes, more people failed to identify the content as marketing, but half of the people in the study felt deceived, lied to. And what studies have found is that when this happens, when it becomes known that there was hidden sponsored content, both parties' image goes down in the eyes of the consumer. So for the newspaper article, people's images of both the New York Times and Netflix would go down, hypothetically. Now, say what you want about marketers. I make fun of them from time to time, but they are some of the biggest proponents of psychology out there. There's been so many findings in psychology done in part by marketers or funded by marketing agencies. Yes to sell, but important for understanding the psyche. And when studies like this come out, they are quick to read, analyze, and figure out how to change it. And they were here too, but so was the government. Soon, you had those disclosure mandates that I talked about earlier. Have a paid promotion, you have to market. Have a product placement, you have to disclose that. And not only do you have to disclose it, you have to disclose it at the beginning, which is so important. Remember that John Oliver clip we listened to earlier? Later on, he talks about how the FCC regulations were skirted around because the disclaimer was there for two seconds at the end. Well, many governments have closed that loophole, but others have not been so quick. But they wanted that loophole closed to protect consumers. Again, when you put it in the beginning, it allows people to activate that persuasion resistance system. It allows people to take everything they are about to see with a grain of salt 
and decide for themselves if they believe it or not. But this is a problem for marketers and also content creators. We just talked about once people know they are sponsored content, their image goes down for both parties. Sure, maybe if you just need one purchase, that's fine, but most companies are in it for the long haul. They want lifelong customers, and content creators want subscribers, likes, and Patreon backers. And now they have to disclose everything. So you get where some of these companies might try to go into some gray area tactics. But then out come some studies that might just work. I actually think the best way to describe it came in a 2021 paper when they called it the disclosure paradox. What these studies leading up to 2021 found is that paradoxically, two opposing reactions happen when a disclosure is given. On the one hand, you are angry about being sold something. Your resistance system is activated. But on the other hand, you are happy because you were told about it. And your resistance system lowers a bit because the person is being honest. And this is the key. What these studies start finding is that there is a way of making it so that, yeah, people are mad about being advertised stuff, of course, but they can feel some positive feelings too. There might just be a way to balance it out or make it even favorable. So let's start with influencers. Influencers are hugely important to marketers now, and should be. They amass huge followings in a wide array of age ranges. What studies found is that disclosures are important, and people are forgiving as long as they are true to the brand and true to the audience. Let's break that down. The first tenet is that it has to be true to the brand, and mostly that brand means the person. If I'm a Japan travel blog, and a hotel pays for me to eat the fancy sushi as long as I film the restaurant, then as long as I disclose that properly, my audience will be okay with that. It makes sense with my brand. And getting a free sushi meal makes sense too. Compensation is important, but we are going to explain that more in depth later on. But if I'm a Japan travel blog and a company pays for me to fly to Qatar and dine out there, that doesn't really make sense. And that leads me to bring true to the audience, only picking content that seems beneficial for them. Again, to go back to the travel blog thing, eating sushi and filming it makes sense for them. They're subscribed to a Japan travel blog. Maybe I can teach them about sushi types or the Japanese words for them. Maybe it gives the chance to show the difference between Japanese sushi and American sushi. That's beneficial for them. Flying to Cutter isn't. They aren't subscribed to me for that content. But the important thing in all of this is the disclosure. It has to be disclosed. And this is really important because not only does it actually negate some negativity, it can actually spark promotion from followers. Studies showed that when adolescents learned about the social media influencers' compensation system, they were down with it and wanted to promote the brands further on their own social media platforms. Why? Because of a little thing called confirmation bias. We want to be right, and the fact that, oh my goodness, the person I'm following, that I've created a parasocial relationship with, is seen as so important and influential that a great sushi restaurant gave them free food? That's incredible! Seriously, it's not just in kids. Multiple studies have shown that when disclosed properly, followers of that influencer have a more positive attitude toward that influencer due to a perceived prestige. And let's talk about that disclosure now, because that is really the important thing. It was a change in thought, really. A change from, how do I make the ad better, more subtle, to, what can I do about the disclosure? How can I make the disclosure better? Early on, it was hinted at that the disclosure was really the key. Early studies kept showing that when the disclosure was done right, it not only increased the trustworthiness of the personality, but also of the product being reviewed and the overall chance of purchasing. But what is a correctly done disclosure? For one thing, it needs to be upfront. There are a few things that irritate people more than having digested a bunch of content only for you to tell them in the closing minutes that this entire thing was sponsored content. That has been repeatedly found to be a disastrous towards consumers. 
It was the same thing with the government regulations, right? By putting the disclosure early, it gives people a chance to judge for themselves whether or not they think there is bias. Because it's up to people to decide whether or not you sound biased or not. It's not up to really the content creator. And by putting it at the end, it makes people feel deceived, like you were trying to hide it. If, for example, let's say MKBHD, a huge tech reviewer, does a glowing review of the new iPhone. It's a 30-minute video, and by the end, I'm like, wow, this is awesome. Then in minute 31 of 32, he says, oh, and this review was sponsored by Apple. Well, hold up, hold up. No, because that makes me reevaluate everything I've watched up until that point. And psychologically speaking, makes me feel deceived and probably unlikely to make the purchase of the iPhone and probably more unlikely to watch MKBHD again. So disclosure timing, very important. And it's why so many studies have urged governments to have the warning either prior or concurrent with the sponsored content. The next point that's important is compensation expectation and justification. People understand fundamentally that people need money and it's okay to take sponsorships. You just have to be upfront with what that means and that you're actually taking it. It's called sponsorship compensation justification. Let me try that again. Sponsorship compensation justification. That's fun to say. Just saying, hey, we are going to start taking money from companies. This is what it entails or simply why. It could be simple. Bringing you content is a full-time job and I'm going to take an income by bringing you a Skillshare commercial now. Okay, now it still has to belong with the brand, right? It can't go against the values of the brand. I know No Pun Included has done Skillshare videos talking about their use of it to film videos and get better at cinematography. And so Very Wrong About Games has talked about starting to have commercials, but if anybody thought any company they had commercials with had values opposing theirs, please let them know and they won't let them advertise. It's things like that where, okay, you're telling me what you're doing. You're telling me why. And it lets the viewer or listener decide. Again, it's transparency, and it's my choice whether I listen or watch it. By raising my trustworthiness with the content creator, more advertisers will follow because, again, I know it's coming. Finally, we need to come to the biggie. It needs to be genuine. This is just repeatedly shown over and over again that the disclosure has to be authentic. It can't be half-assed. You need to come out and give the disclosure fully. In fact, this is probably better to just talk about the counter. By only tacitly disclosing your content as sponsored, studies showed that you are ranked below average in trustworthiness and that people actually stop trusting you altogether. Having disclosures that are kind of impartial or ambiguous or that kind of, well, that's technically true, but a bit misleading is the worst thing you can do. And that, my friends, leads us to the news. Let's start with Alex from Board Game Co. Now, this isn't a hit piece. Please don't interpret it that way. He just made a video I happened to view complaining that he was losing followers over the Quackalope thing and didn't know why. So let's see if we can come up with a theory using what we've talked about today. Again, this isn't how to be a good YouTuber. We aren't looking at this legally either. We're just asking, what is the best psychologically? All right, so first, yes, probably it is partially because Board Game Co. had Quackalope on quite a bit over a year ago. In fact, I actually stopped watching before that, and so I thought they were still together. So I'm probably not the only one who thought that they were still a team or at least working together. But the other thing really has to do with a thing called conflict of interest. Let me explain. Alex has a great video series called Tobacco or Not Tobacco, where he sits down and goes through a lot of the big board game crowdfunding campaigns and evaluates them on a monetary level and if he's interested in them. He answers questions like, will it hold its value? Does the publisher seem reputable? Things like that. And it's done really casually. It's really welcoming. You feel like you're sitting there with him as he switches tabs and needs to take a coffee break every once in a while because he's talking so much. He rambles, but it makes you feel like you're just chilling with him. And these can go pretty long, between 30 minutes and more than an hour. But it's cool. We are learning about crowdfunding games together. Now, I used to watch this series all the time on my way to work. I actually had to stop because I was backing way too much, which I talked about in our acquisition disorder lecture. 
But it surprised me to see this new video pop up, and some people in the Discord talking about a conflict of interest about his videos. I was confused. I know he ran a board game shop, but that doesn't really seem relevant. Well, it turns out he's the chief marketing officer for the second biggest crowdfunding platform for board games, many of which he is talking about and evaluating on his channel. Okay, that's, hmm, okay, that's a bit weird, but surely he talks about that, right? Well, for this lecture, I went back a couple of months, and he mentioned it once. And in a 26 and a half minute video, he mentions it at 25 minutes and 11 seconds. So the final minute. And he mentions it for five seconds. Sounds like something we talked about earlier, right? I kept going back. Five of the last eight videos had GameFound projects as the pick of the week. Okay, let's just keep going back. Surely he has to mention GameFound. And he does. Going back to three months ago, he finally mentions it again by saying, disclaimer one, I do work for GameFound. Take that into account when I select any of their games for pick of the week. And this is at, in a 41 minute video, minute 39. Now here's the thing. On these counts, I think the five of the last eight videos have GameFound picks is just a coincidence. And I'm not including the one posted a couple days ago because it was after the Quackalope thing, so he had time to edit and the like, if need be. It might not be, though. It's hard to tell, because the other factors make me a bit skeptical. We talked before going through the list. Compensation justification. There was a video about it, about his new job, and it was nine months ago. So if someone is watching any videos of his recently, they have absolutely no idea of this conflict of interest. Two, is it up front? Absolutely not. It's in the last one or two minutes of the video when he is making picks of the week. Again, like my example earlier, if I just spent all of this time with you, and just now you are telling me you have a possible conflict of interest because you work for GameFound, so all those great things you said about the GameFound campaigns, what am I supposed to think about that? And clearly he knows sponsors should go up front, because he's done it at least two times in the past five months where he's had a sponsor spot and has been right at the beginning. And finally, is it a genuine disclosure? I'd argue no. When he just quickly says, I am the CMO of GameFound, or the one from three months ago where he just goes, I do work for GameFound. Okay, wait. You do work for GameFound. That's technically true. But like, that doesn't quite describe the extent that you do, right? You're the chief marketing officer. It might be just a fancy title, but that sounds like you have a lot more at stake than just someone who works there. If I'm a cashier at Target, I just work for Target. If I'm the chief marketing officer at Target, Target better succeed or I'm in trouble. And maybe he's good at being unbiased. When I'm watching his videos, he has that same great casual tone he's always used. I remember why I watched him. But we've talked about inherent bias before, though. The subconscious biases that we have without realizing it. Is it that weird to think that he has those towards GameFound campaigns? Because people could reasonably think that he would subconsciously pick those games so that his viewers would go towards those as well, and GameFound campaigns succeed just a bit more. He does want GameFound to look good as their chief marketing officer, right? Or is it that weird to think that if he trashes a GameFound campaign, other companies might not want to work with him or GameFound? I think this is actually the most likely reason people are leaving the channel. It's not about Quackalope. I mean, it kind of is, but it's more about this weird conflict of interest. There's a lot more going on on his channel, reviews and things, but it muddies the water enough that people's trust could dissipate. And with people now paying attention to where people are getting their money from and who is disclosing how they are getting their compensation, putting a quick little disclaimer at the end of your video every once in a while that most of the time is technically true but not the whole story is not a good look. Again, I just want to reiterate again, this is just psychologically speaking. I'm not talking about the decisions made to make a good YouTube channel or any business decisions. I don't know. He has 50,000 subscribers and I have 250. I'm definitely not giving business advice here. I just thought it was an interesting case study because a channel that has been on an upward trajectory suddenly loses subscribers over a controversy regarding a different YouTube channel. So now it's time to tackle the elephant in the room, or really the duck, or the quackalope, whatever that is. 
And it's also time to get to our last concept. It's all about expectations. We kind of glossed over a few of these points earlier, but sticking to one's brand is really important. But it's not just sticking to your brand, it's sticking to what people expect out of someone there. It might be authenticity, it might be bias, it might be compensation. If the sponsored content you are providing isn't in line with those expectations, people get a dissonance and may be disappointed. Now, I'm not saying you have to please everyone, but there are definitely some standard practices for different industries that have become reasonable expectations. One would be compensation. The way one gets compensated makes a difference in some industries. For example, is it that hard to believe that a beauty influencer with a million followers gets some free makeup? Probably not. I would completely have that expectation. Along the same lines, is it that weird to think that board game reviewers with a lot of followers get some free board games? Not at all. I would fully expect that. But this is where it gets weird. Remember how we talked about compensation justification? Well, part of this is also laying down the ground rules for the compensation. Letting the audience know how the compensation is stipulated. For example, Shut Up and Sit Down has said many times that they get sent board games, but to know that they don't get to half of them and only review the ones they have strong feelings about one way or the other. That is telling not only their followers, but companies. Hey, people might send games, but we have the right to not review it and say what we want about it. And so every year, Shut Up and Sit Down does a donation drive to keep the channel going. And this hits at another thing people expect of reviewers, unbiased reviews. If sponsored content gets in the way of that, whether it be a conflict of interest or by compensation, that can absolutely skew the review. I think So Very Wrong About Games does a very good job of this. Every time R. Eric Royce is mentioned, or rather one of his games, Mark always, without fail, mentions that they are friends. That allows the listeners to make the judgment. And it's every episode. The host might play Spirit Island three weeks in a row, but you know those three episodes, they mention the friendship. So even someone totally new to the podcast knows of the possible conflict of interest. But it goes back to the sharp and sit down thing too. And I think other podcasts and channels like Board Game Mirage have mentioned this too, that they are under no obligation, free game or not, to give a good review. And that lines up with the expectations that the audience has. Whether the review included free stuff or not, I'm getting an unbiased review. And that unbiased I think I'm making up words now, but this unbiasedness is key. In fact, one study found that for product reviews, having an explicit statement saying you are impartial actually increased your credibility, meaning your credibility was higher when you talked about, hey, this isn't a sponsored review or including the hashtag not sponsored than if you said nothing at all and just assuming people think it's unbiased. But let's not beat around the pond here anymore. Let's just talk about Quackalope. Did Jesse in his emails meet the psychological expectations of his viewers? Did he meet the impartiality expectation? Well, no. When he talked about getting rid of the negative footage for a more positive one in exchange for money and sponsorship, he got rid of any plausible impartiality he could have. Which, speaking of money, did he meet the compensation expectation? It's hard because I'm not really well versed in how much people charge for videos like that, but $7,500 for a set of videos might sound like a lot to some people. I think people would expect a free copy of the game, but maybe not the game and $7,500. But it would be interesting to learn more about how compensation works for these kind of things from other content creators. And if anyone is listening that can teach me about it, I'd love to chat. Did he seem authentic and genuine? Again, no, not really. Not only did his story of things not line up with the emails, but in his apology video, it takes about 25 minutes in to get to an apology of a 29-minute video. This, again, could rub people the wrong way. So it really is no wonder that the reaction was as swift and strong as it was. A base that is these pretty consistent expectations got all of those expectations knocked out in a few emails. A channel that has led many people to at least looking at a certain Kickstarter, if not straight up buying one, has been found to be taking money for positive reviews. And it gets people thinking, right? Did this happen before? Did we just now find out about this? What if all or even some positive reviews before were those emails working? We just never found out. And that muddying of the water, that beginning of doubt, is what is a psychological death blow. 
because your brain starts trying to find patterns. Was this a one-time thing? What other videos has he done that could have been jeopardized? If not just Quackalope, who else? Who else might be doing this? I know I subscribe to other reviewers. Maybe they are doing it too. And you got comments throughout the weekend talking about how all reviewers suck or everyone is just in it for the money. We call this overgeneralizing, and it often happens in a state of anxiety, which could absolutely understandably happen if you think you might have spent hundreds of dollars by possibly a sponsored, heavily compensated spot by an advertisement. It again goes back to this key thing. People felt deceived. Now, did we need to do a whole lecture to come to this conclusion? No, probably not. I think people pretty quickly understood why people were angry. And maybe that's why some people get tired of psychology. We sometimes try to figure out things that are everyday things. But what I want to get you thinking about is that these concrete things we talked about, proper disclosure, compensation justification, sticking to a brand, these are concrete steps in a psychologically successful sponsored post. Did I say business success? No. Did I say it's going to get you thousands of views? No. I had 250 subscribers on YouTube. These people know more than me of how to make a successful YouTube channel. I'm sure saving the I'm sponsored for the end keeps that retention high because maybe if you put it in the beginning, some people will click away. Makes sense. I'm not saying this is how to run a successful YouTube channel. But if we want to keep this from happening again, it's beneficial to see what it takes. Sponsored content can live in the board game industry if it's done correctly. It is basically the expectation in so many other industries. There's no reason it wouldn't be able to survive and thrive in board games. But we have to do it right. We have to properly disclose it. We have to meet the audience at the expectation. If psychology has taught us anything about it, it's that viewers understand that content creators need money, understand that there are perks to having a successful channel, but they want to be included. They want to succeed with you. Maybe it's a parasocial relationship, but it should be treated with integrity, authenticity, and hopefully a good time sharing in the hobby everyone enjoys. That's going to be all for today's class. I hope you learned something interesting and I wasn't super high on my soapbox. I will see you all next week. Thank you so much for listening to the Board Game Dojo. A bit of a heavy episode today, so thanks for tuning in. If you liked the episode, let us know on Twitter and on Instagram and tell your friends about it. You can also email us at boardgamedojopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Arigatou gozaimashita. Until next time, じゃあね!